from coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Terra Informa. We are really making our way through the year, and that awful pun is the indication that we have reached the end of the month of May. I'm Hannah Cunningham, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news headlines. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Amiskwiti, Wiskaigan, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton, on Treaty 6 land. CGSR 88.5 FM broadcasts from unrecognized Papa's Chase territory, a people who were displaced by the efforts of colonists and colonial governments. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homeland of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Coming up next month on June 21st is Indigenous Peoples Day in Canada. It's a complicated thing having a day of appreciation because absolutely we need to be celebrating the Indigenous communities where we live and across the planet, but it feels like a drop in a bucket, especially when the news is filled with daily reminders that our government is a colonial machine that works to dampen down Indigenous lived experiences and ways of thinking and living. I think that over the next month, all of us coming from settler backgrounds, myself included, should practice learning more about the Indigenous people and experiences that are integral to where you live. One idea, if you live in so-called Edmonton, You could learn how to say each of the new city ward names, which were given Indigenous titles last year. Additionally, we'll be posting some links to some social media accounts for our Land and Water Defenders update segment, but maybe take a look and see if there are any outreach pages for the Indigenous communities in your area. They can be a great place to look for mutual aid opportunities and other ways to help out in your community or to learn more about what's going on in your community, or to find links to Indigenous artists and other great people to support. This month, we've got quite a few stories coming from Western Canada. But before we head there, let's cover some international news. Here's Kurt Blandy talking about a record-breaking super typhoon that took place in the Philippines. The tropical storm is setting world records as it becomes the earliest super typhoon to hit the western Pacific region. Bearing the fingerprint of climate change, Typhoon Sergei, known in the Philippines as Typhoon Bising, originated in mid-April. Before this, the earliest typhoon to wreak havoc on the Philippines coastline originated on June 26th. Super Typhoon Sergei arrived a full 70 days earlier than any other storm throughout history. Sergei originated from a low-pressure area south of the Micronesian island of Walia that organized into a tropical depression on April 12th. The formation of an eye came next, and increasing winds prompted the Japan Meteorological Agency to upgrade the system to a severe tropical storm on April 13th. The storm proceeded to gradually strengthen, and late on April 15th, Sergei became a typhoon. Extreme and favorable environmental conditions allowed Sergei to intensify rapidly and on the next day, Sergei became a super typhoon. By April 17th, the storm reached its peak intensity, 
with 10 minute sustained winds of 220 kilometers per hour, one minute sustained winds of 305 kilometers an hour, and a maximum wind speed of 315 kilometers per hour. This is what made it the strongest pre-May typhoon on record. Due to the threat of the storm, a tropical storm watch was issued for the island of Yap and Nulu Atoll on April 14th. In Yap, the wind speed had reached 48 kilometers per hour. As Sergei entered the Philippine area of responsibility, the Philippine Atmospheric, Geophysical and Astronomical Services Administration began issuing weather warnings and bulletins for the nearby storm. Initial forecasts by the agency suggested that the storm was expected to recurve away from the Philippines. On April 16th, the Department of Transportation in the Philippines suspended all air and land travel to and from Visayas and Mindanao as Sergei approached. Wave heights as high as 4.5 meters, or 15 feet, were forecast near the eastern coasts of Visayas and Mindanao. In order to avoid agricultural losses, Secretary William Dar of the Department of Agriculture encouraged farmers in eastern Visayas region to harvest their crops and for fishermen to refrain from fishing as conditions may worsen. On April 17th, flood advisories were issued for three regions in Visayas and Mindanao in preparation for the intense rains. A preemptive evacuation then began for the Baisal region and the Samar province, and by April 21st, 170,000 people were evacuated. The equivalent of 31 million US dollars worth of standby funds were prepared for certain disaster response. The impacts of the super typhoon were felt across the Philippines, Micronesia, and Palau. Sergei brought sustained winds of up to 80 kilometers per hour and gusts of up to 135 kilometers per hour to Palau, causing power outages across the island. The entire population of Palau, consisting of approximately 18,000 people, was impacted by the typhoon. At least $2 million in U.S. dollars worth of infrastructure alone was damaged. The total amount of damage across health, infrastructure, education, food, communication, utilities, and other sectors was assessed at $4.8 million U.S. dollars. In the Philippines, five people within a boat were required to be rescued off the coast due to dangerous sea conditions produced by Sergei. Another boat with two fishermen aboard capsized, with both of two fishermen having to swim back to shore in extremely dangerous conditions. On April 19th, Sergei forced the cargo ship LCU Cebu Great Ocean, carrying 20 crew members, to run aground on the coast of the southern Philippines. At least six of the crew members were found dead, while seven were rescued. The search continues for another missing seven crew members. A total of 10 deaths were reported due to this typhoon. A total of 3,400 houses were damaged, with 160 totally destroyed. 63 cities experienced power interruptions and agricultural damage assessed at 5.5 million in U.S. dollars. On April 22nd, the storm began to rapidly weaken as it accelerated northwards into unfavorable conditions. Afterward, Sergei's remnant continued northeastward. On April 27th, Sergei explosively intensified into a bomb cyclone, meaning that it gained hurricane force winds. Then afterward, the system gradually weakened as it turned eastward 
slowing down in the process before dissipating completely on April 30th. I'm Kurt Blandy, and you're listening to Terra Informa. Thanks, Kurt. Now let's move over to British Columbia, where several of this month's stories take place. At the beginning of the month, the environmental activist group Extinction Rebellion shut down Granville Bridge in Vancouver, leading to eight arrests. Here's Elizabeth Dowdell to tell us about that bridge sit-in and to bring us a short interview with one of the protesters. Earlier this month, you might have caught a headline about a bright pink 15-foot boat named Tahlequah, the boat of truth, blocking the intersection of Granville and Georgia Streets in downtown Vancouver. If you followed that story, you'll be familiar with the environmental activist network, Extinction Rebellion. For the first five days of May, Extinction Rebellion Vancouver took climate action to the streets in a spring rebellion, reminding folks about the environmental and climate crisis we are rushing headfirst into. Extinction Rebellion is known for making the news with actions that block traffic or otherwise disrupt business as usual in urban centers. But they are also known for having a bit of a diversity problem in that members are often white and of some financial means. I had the chance to talk to one of the activists arrested on May 1st and hear about their experience with police, with Extinction Rebellion and other environmental action networks, and how that diversity problem can be a powerful call to action, allyship, and solidarity. So I I chose to be arrested. I went into it completely prepared. I absolutely had all of my ducks in a row, if you will, um, pre-arrest. I realized that there really is no plan to stop climate change. There is no plan to save humanity. And I don't think I can function within that system. So part of Extinction Rebellion's ethos is that we can't function within the system that is killing us. And as a result, I chose to be arrested. Uh, So the Vancouver Police Department were very excellent with us. They were very gentle with us. They gave us ample warning, much more than was legally necessary. They requested that we exit the intersection uh, multiple times before moving in. Uh, I chose to stay and I was informed that I would be arrested and I accepted that responsibility and I remained. So I was arrested as part of an action in downtown Vancouver. And so when they came to get us, I chose to go voluntarily and I uh, was treated with respect by the police. Um, They were very, they were as gentle as I think they could be but I am incredibly Canadian and I did say thank you after I was handcuffed. (laughs) Okay. So getting arrested for what you care about, not that scary. It could be a polite interaction or how did it it feel? There were so many witnesses and so many supporters that I was, I was obviously nervous, but I wasn't afraid. I knew that as a function of my privilege as a settler on these lands, I absolutely was in the safest possible position to be. I have no characteristics that would put me at risk in a prison situation. I had what I would consider to be the ideal experience. 
where I was processed quite quickly. I was treated with the utmost respect. They checked to make sure my handcuffs weren't hurting me, that type of situation. So you were there, you were participating in this action, and you had this arrest experience that that's not likely indicative for a lot of people, for a lot of people who don't have the same privileges as you. I was very aware of my privilege, and I chose to use it in that moment to support the cause that I truly believe in. I think that we absolutely have to do something about climate change. I don't really like that either. I, I would say more the climate emergency. And at this point, I am fully aware that we have solutions and that they are just unwilling to implement the solutions. So I like to use the term climate neglect because if you have the tools to fix the problem and you don't, then it's just straight neglect. If we didn't have any ideas for how to fix this and we needed more research, we needed more education, we needed more study, then I could say that it was like more research was needed. But in this case, we know the answers. We are just unwilling to act. And the government is unwilling to act. And it's time. To someone who is maybe taking the steps and starting to think about getting more involved with climate action, maybe going out and getting arrested, any advice you would give them as a part of your community about how to prepare for that, to like, you know, debrief and talk about it? Did it feel traumatizing at all? I wouldn't say it's traumatizing, but I would say that it's very odd to go back to your typical everyday life. So the way that I felt the day after was like I had had this experience that to me was a fundamental shift in the way that I was behaving within this system. And then the next day I went to my job and my employers were incredibly supportive, which is the other reason I felt completely safe participating in this particular action. So I honestly had the support of my family, my employers, my friends, and I, at no point was I risking anything more than my relationship or lack thereof previously with the court. And I mean, maybe a little weather for the day. Uh, yes, I, um, I did in fact call my mother I told her everything that had happened, except that I got a sunburn. So I hope she doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> Thank you to Corinne with Extinction Rebellion for talking to us about their experience and why privilege can actually be good news when it comes to taking climate action. Thanks, Elizabeth. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM. This week, we're wrapping up the environmental news headlines from the past month. So far, we've covered a super typhoon that broke records in the Philippines and Extinction Rebellion's blockade of Granville Bridge in Vancouver. Next, we'll be covering the logging of old growth forests in British Columbia. First, here's Liam Harrop talking about the increase of old growth logging approvals in the province and some audio from a protest against these logging practices that took place in the city of Revelstoke this past weekend. Hello, John Horgan. My name is Emma Atkinson, and I'm here in Revelstoke, BC. We're having a little gathering today 
something that we wanted to say to you. That is the sound of a rally in Revelstoke, British Columbia on May 30th. Roughly 100 people gathered in the downtown core to support the Ferry Creek blockade on Vancouver Island. During the event, the group called Premier John Horgan and urged him to stop logging old growth. One of Horgan's election campaign promises last fall was to protect old growth forests. However, according to new mapping data released by the eco-group Wilderness Committee, in the past 12 months, the province has approved significantly more logging permits, approximately 44% more than it did the year before. In Revelstoke, there has been several protests recently to protect old growth. For example, the government has put a hold on logging just north of the community in a region called Argonaut Creek. The area provides habitat for endangered mountain caribou. While the government has paused logging in several areas around my community, I live in Revelstoke by the way, it has not changed the allowable annual cut, which is the amount of timber a forest company is allowed to harvest. The community of Revelstoke owns a timber company. It's called the Revelstoke Community Forest Corporation. This spring, the company's allowable cut was approved for another 10 years at the same rate as the previous 10 years. Meaning, while the government has stopped logging in certain areas, it still has the same goals for timber harvesting. The wood just has to be collected from the remaining allowable areas. An article in the news organization, the Taiyi, said there could be several factors why there has been an increase in old growth logging permits within the last year. It could be because of an eight-month strike by coastal forestry workers and mill shutdowns in 2020, which caused a decrease in permits last year. Thus, the industry is now just trying to play catch-up. Or it could be because of a recent spike in lumber prices, which is making timber particularly valuable. However, the eco-group, the Wilderness Committee, said in the Taiyi that the recent spur of logging approvals is probably in preparation for additional restrictions on old-growth logging that is expected to come. This means... The recent rush from logging companies is that they are trying to get as much timber while they still can before new rules come into effect. Mapping by Wilderness Committee showed that 80% of the recent logging approvals are in areas with the biggest trees and highest biodiversity in the province. As mentioned earlier, the NDP government in BC has pledged to start protecting more forests, in particular old growth. However, at this time, there are little details on what the new restrictions could look like or when they could come into effect. According to many researchers, less than 1% of old growth in BC forests remain intact. In Revelstoke, where I live, logging is an economic pillar of the community. The mill, Downey Timber, is one of the largest employers in town, and it provides really good jobs, like the type of jobs where you could afford a house. The future of logging here is a really big topic. We also have mountain caribou, which depend on old growth for lichen, the animal's main food source, but those animals are dwindling. Many experts, including the government, agree that how we log has to change. The protest in Revelstoke acknowledges that logging has to happen. We need wood and timber for everyday life. I mean, here in Revelstoke, 
the very house I live in is made out of wood. However, the protesters say the industry isn't sustainable and any change that is happening in it is happening too slow. Protesters and many researchers across the province worry that by the time the government takes action, the giant trees will all be gone. I'm Liam Harrop in Revelstoke for Terra Informa. Thanks, Liam. Now that we know about what's going on with the old growth logging in British Columbia, let's get into our land and water defender updates, as there are many actions taking place around the logging of old growth forests. It has been a big month for land and water defenders on Turtle Island, and specifically for those on the west coast of so-called Canada. During the month of May, media coverage of the logging taking place in Ferry Creek, unceded territory of the Pachida First Nation, has exploded. Support for the blockade camps in the Ferry Creek area, which is the last unprotected, intact, old-growth valley on southern Vancouver Island, has grown with the Ferry Creek Blockade Instagram account stating that on May 15th, they had six forest protection camps standing. These camps, some of which have been in place for nine months, are occupied by Indigenous forest defenders as well as non-Indigenous activists. On April 1st, the logging company Teal Jones was granted an injunction to remove protesters from the area. In the middle of May, logging began in the area. At this time, on May 17th, RCMP began enforcing the Teal Jones injunction and began arrests the following day at the KQ's camp. The RCMP set up two checkpoints that prevented access to the KQ's camp, which was protecting the old-growth forests of the KQ's watershed. An exclusion zone was also established, preventing the media from accessing the area. On May 18th, seven blockaders were arrested. On May 19th, six more were arrested, including a legal observer and a member of the media. On May 20th, an act of police brutality took place when an Indigenous legal observer was arrested and charged with obstruction and assaulting a police officer. According to a post from the Ferry Creek Blockade Instagram account, the RCMP are not following the law in their actions and that the injunction did not permit the use of exclusion zones and only allowed for arrests of people who were directly blocking the logging work. Tree sitters, activists who are stationed up in trees to prevent them from being logged, have also been arrested, some by helicopter. Numerous protesters have attached themselves to trees in different ways and using different kinds of contraptions that are almost like puzzles, making it difficult and time-consuming for the RCMP to remove them. On May 25th, The Ferry Creek Blockade Instagram account was blocked from posting, which many called an act of censorship and anti-Indigenous violence on Instagram's part. After not posting since May 21st, the account was able to resume posting on May 26th. On May 27th, the RCMP broke through to another of the forest protection camps, called Waterfall Camp, and made five arrests and cut off the remaining activists from other camps and forest defenders. Following this, the RCMP oversaw the destruction of all accessible structures at Waterfall Camp with an excavator. On May 29th, 200 people confronted an RCMP checkpoint and marched to Waterfall Camp, where the activists there had been cut off from others for days. On the same day, over 1,000 people joined the Ferry Creek Blockade headquarters. 
Elder Bill Jones of Pachida First Nation spoke to the RCMP liaison, criticizing Teal Jones, the government, and Western culture for its selfishness and their obstruction of Indigenous laws to their land. He then cut the police tape that was blocking access to Waterfall Camp and led forest defenders in a convoy of over 500 vehicles. Solidarity actions have been taking place across British Columbia, including Extinction Rebellion blocking logging trucks from passing through the city of Castlegar, and numerous protests in cities like Victoria, Vancouver, Langley, and Revelstoke. On the day that I'm recording this, Sunday, May 30th, a protest is planned to take place at Teal Jones's mill in Surrey. For updates on what's going on at Ferry Creek, the Ferry Creek Blockade and Rainforest Flying Squad Instagram accounts post regular updates. We will include links to these accounts in the show notes for this episode. Now, let's end with a good news story. Here's Charlotte Thomason to share a story about the littlest pipeline protester of all, a hummingbird. Shh. Do you hear that? That is the sound of the Anna's hummingbird, a small but mighty bird that has temporarily halted part of the expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So how did this little guy, just 10 centimeters in length, put a four-month stop work order on a multi-million dollar project? Well, Anna's hummingbirds are protected in Canada by the Migratory Birds Act. Being protected under the Act means that, quote, no person shall disturb, destroy, or take a nest, egg, nest shelter of a migratory bird, end quote. At the end of April, conservation officers at the construction site saw the Trans Mountain Company fall a tree with an active nest in it. Environment and Climate Change Canada then issued an order saying that any work that could negatively affect the Anna's hummingbird must be ceased. This means that during the bird's four-month nesting season, tree felling and other activity that could harm the bird cannot go ahead. This stop work order only applies to where they nest, which is on the Brunette River in BC. And that only covers about one kilometer of the 1,150-kilometer pipeline route. As of April 26th, when the order was issued, the Group Community Nest Finding Network had found eight active nests, but thinks there could be more along the pipeline's route. Trans Mountain issued a statement on their website that this would not affect the slated completion date of December 2022, and would not comment on whether it would increase the pipeline's costs. This, however, is contested by groups advocating against the project, who say, according to an affidavit by the company, that tree clearing needed to happen before August 1st, This will cause delays, as the company will miss its 2021 watercourse crossing window. Lawyer Eugene Kung told the National Observer, quote, This is another costly example of Trans Mountain's disregard for the rules that has happened far too often throughout construction. It was only because of the incredible work of local residents that they were caught red-handed. With every delay, the total cost to taxpayers balloons and the project falls further outside the public interest. 
We have not seen a cost update in more than a year, but it's easy to estimate the cost being closer to $20 billion today, end quote. However, this story ends on a lighter note. Kaya George, a member of the community Nestfinders Network, said that the hummingbird ceasing some construction was a good sign. Quote, Hummingbirds represent good luck and represent what is to come. And I think this situation and what is to come is ultimately the defeat of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. End quote. This has been Charlotte Thomason reporting on the Anna's Hummingbird halting construction of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Thanks, Charlotte. That's all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Hannah Cunningham. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. Thanks to everyone who contributed a story this week. If you like what you heard, check out our website, terrainforma.ca, or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Terra Informa. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa.